I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. This is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. No question that this is the least shady contactee who's ever appeared on this show. This is Why Do Bird-Like Aliens Suddenly Appear? So a few months ago, I got a message from Jordan at the Nighttime Podcast, which you should check out if you like creepy crime stuff. And he asked if I'd be interested in a book he found called On a Slide of Light by a woman named Greta Woodrow. Of course I was. And he sent me the book, enclosing a note which read, Hi, Saucer Life. This book looks interesting. Not, I want to read it interesting, but I'd listen to a podcast about it interesting. Can you help? In fact, this may be the only kind of help I'm qualified to provide to anybody. After reading On a Slide of Light, I tracked down the sequel, Memories of Tomorrow, and decided that this was all more than interesting enough to sustain an episode of the show. There are some interesting thematic similarities with some other figures we've looked at, and I'm able to point out an error in a well-known ufology reference work. So, what's not to love? So when digging around for biographical information on Greta Woodrow, I was very fortunate that one of the results that came up was a November 2010 announcement about her death from the old UFO Updates email list. Rich Hyden wrote the following. On October 21st, I got a postcard informing me of the death of Greta Woodrow Smolow on September 1st. She was a contactee and healer and author of On a Slide of Light as Greta Woodrow. I was on the mailing list because for years I had gotten her newsletter. So once I read that, I knew that looking around for Greta Smolow rather than her pen name of Greta Woodrow would yield more and better results than two pages of links about her books and a UFO updates post. For consistency, I'll refer to her as Greta Woodrow in this episode, except when I don't. Probably the best summary of her life comes from the University of Florida, which has a Greta Andron Smolow scholarship. When she earned her B.A. with honors from UF in 1951, Greta Smolow became the first woman to graduate from the four-year program and to receive both the Phi Beta Kappa Achievement Award and Dr. Allen's Award for Excellence. The university's Hall of Fame hailed her as First Lady of Student Body Dramatics, Service, and Leadership. She served as the first female president of a variety of groups including Florida Players, Blue Key, and Radio Guild. After graduation, under the pen name Greta Woodrow, she went on to become a member of Actors' Equity, vice president of Grapevine Industries, and president of her own executive search firm, Woodrow Services. Together with her husband, Dick, she co-edited the Woodrow Update for 15 years. It became an international bi-monthly newsletter that gained subscribers from all over the United States, Canada, and 14 countries abroad. For her extensive work with scientific research labs, the American Biographical Institute honored her for international contributions to the world of sci. In 1979, William Penn College awarded Greta with an LLD honorary degree of Doctor of Laws. She served as vice president of the Space Technology and Research Foundation, lecturing and giving seminars and classes worldwide at universities and for education and business groups. In 1979, William Penn College awarded Greta with an LLD honorary degree of Doctor of Laws. She served as vice 
president of the Space Technology and Research Foundation, lecturing and giving seminars and classes worldwide at universities and for education and business groups. She was the author of three books. Dr. Greta Smolo passed away on September 1st, 2010. That's Psy, P-S-I, Psy, not Psy as in, I heaved a sigh of despair as I contemplated reading another book by Daniel Fry. As evidence of her theater work under the name Greta Woodrow, we have an article from the Bridgeport, Connecticut Post from June 28, 1959. Yes, the same Bridgeport, Connecticut where Al Bender lived at this same time. No, I don't think there's a connection. Host, hostess to introduce who's who at Pops concerts. For the first time, the Connecticut Pops will have an official host and hostess for its music under the stars. The two are James J. Fielding Jr. and Greta Woodrow, Mrs. Richard E. Smolo, who will stand at the opposite sides of the stage and use a field spotlight to introduce who's who in the crowd. Greta Woodrow lives in 116 Roseville Road, Westport, with her husband and four small children. She is in the College Hall of Fame for her outstanding leadership and dramatic achievements while in University of Florida, her alma mater. Among her prized possessions is the Phi Beta Kappa Achievement Award and the Allen Award for outstanding contributions to dramatic arts. Besides being disc jockey at WRUF and having her own program at WGGG in Miami, she was mistress of ceremonies and chairman of the Gator Bowl in Gator, Florida before 30,000 people. Since coming to live in Westport a few years ago, she has been active in community activities and recently played the lead in Voice of the Turtle with the Westport Players. Voice of the Turtle. That sounds like a contact ebook, actually. In any case, this article, if nothing else, establishes that she was a real person whose achievements were the same as we have seen listed elsewhere. That may be a first for this program. So let's take a look at her first book, On a Slide of Light, A Glimpse of Tomorrow, published by Macmillan in 1981. <laughs> Okay, published by Macmillan in 1981. That's the footnote noise. Now, Jerome Clark, in his book, Extraordinary Encounters, an Encyclopedia of Extraterrestrials and Otherworldly Beings, talks about some of the claims that Greta Woodrow makes. And he refers to On a Slide of Light as self-published, referring to a 1987 re-release from New Age Press of Black Mountain, North Carolina. That's basically a book that was put out by Greta and her husband themselves. He was apparently unaware of the original edition from a major publisher in 1981 when the book first came out and when she was in all kinds of newspapers talking about her book. I like to think he was unaware. It's more charitable and generous than my initial suspicion that he only referred to the small press re-release as a means of diminishing her claims. So what are those claims? She wastes no time in explaining that she has been in contact with extraterrestrial intelligences, or ETI. Here's the whole story. My adventures with ETI began four years ago. The initial contacts took place under laboratory conditions with the guidance of a leading medical doctor and scientist. It was my impression that once I left the lab, I would also leave ETI behind, but this was not to be the case. Once I exercised my free will in allowing extraterrestrials into my life, they quickly became a regular part of my experienced reality. I could be sitting at my desk at let's say 10 a.m., getting ready to phone a client about a prospect. As I dialed the number, I would again glance at the clock, and to my confusion, it would read 1045. Somewhere between the time I reached for the phone and the time I started to dial, 
an interval that should have been less than a second, a full 45 minutes had elapsed. What was happening? What did these peculiar lapses of time and attention mean? They were the beginning of what was to be a continuing dialogue with ETI, transcending time and space and the third dimension. In the days that followed my laboratory introduction to the cosmos, the other members of my family were included in conversations with the ETI. Our visitors informed us that they came from another civilization in another solar system located astronomically on the Messier list at M92, with a further identification clue of O47. Its name is Ogata, and it is part of a binary or twin star system which comprises what they call a Jorpa, and we call a solar system, of five planets in another galaxy, Ogata, Oshan, Arca, Menon, and Tachauvi. The gentle, often whimsical, but always enlightening inhabitants of Ogata have become honored guests and welcome callers in our home. From their first contact in 1976 to their most recent one, their visits never fail to boggle our minds. They provide a constant stream of cosmic serendipity. The leading medical doctor and scientist was Andrea Paharic, one of the most well-known researchers into various psychic phenomenon from the 1950s until his death in 1995. If you've heard of Yuri Geller, for example, it's because of Paharic's investigation of Geller's claims of psychic ability. He held over 50 patents, that's Paharic, not Geller, worked with the military and intelligence agencies and, in general, was one of the most fascinating figures of 20th century weirdness. So Woodrow would be in psychic contact with beings from Ogata, which is a planet aligned with four other planets, including Menin. I like to imagine Menin is where the Mennonites come from, but Woodrow doesn't make that very obvious joke. Me? I'm not afraid to make obvious jokes at all. Also, I'm sure I'm not the only one out there right now who could use a constant stream of cosmic serendipity. That sounds really nice. I do like how she sums up the whole thing very quickly and relatively concisely. The reader should have a good idea of what they're in for if they keep going with the story. Something else we should try to get a good idea of is the kind of person Greta is, or at least how she presents herself. She already, in the things we've heard, is clearly very accomplished, um, a, a pioneer in various fields, one of the first women to do various things, sometimes the first woman to do various things, lead various organizations. In describing her non-alien-oriented life, she says the following. As I approach 50, I look with some pride on my accomplishments as a researcher, business person, teacher, wife, and mother. A Phi Beta Kappa Achievement Award and an honorary LLD substantiate this pride, as do the attainments of the other members of my family. My husband Dick has been president of his own company for many years. As for our four children, Alan has his MBA from Lehigh, Jonathan and Jill are Princeton graduates, and our youngest, Anne, will graduate shortly from Dartmouth. Now, I'm not too proud to admit that this level of status flaunting, on the first page of the book, no less, gave me an extremely negative impression initially. Call it stereotypical Midwestern humility, uh, put it down to my own status anxieties, attribute it to envy, all might be true. Whatever deeply ingrained traits triggered my negative reaction, they were there. But then I wondered if this was a setup for a moment of clarity in which the Ogatans teach her that such achievements are meaningless in the face of cosmic truth. But that never really comes. These are privileged people in terms of social status, income level, and so on. They're the elite. That's not something we see often with contactees. It is something we see perhaps more of in spiritualist circles, which have long been the province of the wealthy, celebrities, etc. In many ways, Greta's story is going to have much more in common with that 
strand of the paranormal than it does with other sort of flying saucer UFO contactee type of thing. So Greta Woodrow actually had a fairly lengthy history of psychic experiences going back to the 1960s, but her ET contacts started with her work with Puharich in the mid-1970s. My experiences with the Ogata group have been stimulating, educational, and alternately frustrating, exhilarating, mystifying, bewildering, and gratifying. For my husband and my four adult children who have been scribes, witnesses, protectors, and students, the seeing was much of the believing, but for you, who may not have had such experiences, I have only words to open your minds, and a vocabulary which is often inadequate to describe things and events for which we as yet have no words. I shall never forget my first encounter with an extraterrestrial. I was standing in a long, shadowy tunnel with a man-like being who had the most marvelous eyes I had ever seen. Golden, human, deeply compassionate. There were two entities with him, both with those same wonderful eyes. They all shared a rather bird-like quality, due in part to the shape of the upper lip. They seemed to be guarding the tunnel. It's this bird-like description that would stick um, in many articles that were written about her encounters. Even though they weren't actual birds, they would produce leaf-like feathers or feather-like leaves, depending on how you talk about it. But um, in general, the birdiness of them tended to be in their movements in a lot of ways. Um, it's kind of vague. So what does she learn from these extraterrestrials? She summarizes that fairly quickly as well. Historian William Irwin Thompson once said, quote, experts are right only about what has been and not what can be, end quote. The ETI point the way to what will be. They have nudged us into discovering universes beyond matter in the cosmic reaches of the spirit. It is not enough merely to listen to the prelude to the symphony that is playing. The Ogata group are inviting, no, urging us to be part of the orchestra. In fact, the overture has already begun. The music it is playing will not always be joyful. Some of the melodies will break our hearts. In an altered state of consciousness, I have witnessed a devastation to our planet which is coming in my own lifetime, in the next several decades. It has already started. The saga of Mount St. Helens is only a harbinger of things to come, subjected to those unforgettable, prophetic glimpses of the future I wept for humanity as I viewed the scenario in its entirety. Hurricanes, floods, Super magnetic storms, droughts, earthquakes, volcanoes, tidal waves that buried whole cities and their populations beneath walls of water. People dying of thirst and hunger, children with burns on their bodies, animals with their hair scorched and their eyes glazed, fish with gills slit and clogged, birds with wings that cannot carry them into flight. I witnessed with horror what appeared to be the devastation of our beautiful planet. So basically, we're doomed. As I read this, I realized why Woodrow wasn't really on my radar as a contactee. The aliens are there. She channels them. She gets information from them, talks about their home worlds, all the usual stuff. But in terms of message and intent, this is really part of a slightly different tradition, if I can use the word tradition. This is right out of the Earth Changes, Time of Transition, New Age playbook. It's not too different from some of the Ashtar stuff, but... If you've listened to too much old Art Bell, you'll probably be familiar with Gordon Michael Scallion, Laurie Toy, or dare I say, Ed Dames. These folks and others spent most of the 1990s 
promoting promoting doomsday scenarios that are highly enjoyable to listen to decades after their predictions failed to occur. That's the world that Greta Woodrow sort of fits into, and it makes sense. We're at the tail end of the 1970s by the time she's writing all of this down. This is the era of the book Future Shock. It's the era of you know stories about a new ice age. The Population Bomb was another book that came out at this time. We're starting to see more concern about ecological factors as well, pollution, nuclear meltdowns, Three Mile Island, things like that. So this is very much of its time, just as much as the uh, the sort of anti-nuclear polemics of 1950s and 60s contactees were. Most of the time, Woodrow would channel a being named Tari, who manifested as a young girl. Initially, uh, Tari would talk to Paharich and later to Greta's husband, Dick Smolo. Um, Dick would serve as a scribe and correspondent uh, for these channeled messages. The Ogata gave Dick the name Ezra, after the scribe and reformer in the Hebrew Bible. Many of the dialogues recorded in the book are a bit, they're not tedious to read. They're fun to read, but uh, they're, they're tedious to listen to. There are the predictable misunderstandings over colloquialisms and and stuff like that, and they're really kind of a chore to get through in some ways. There's a great incident where, due to some kind of attack from another group of aliens, Woodrow is increased in size by 30 pounds or so, which bothers her since the one thing we have always stressed in our family is physical fitness. We're all athletes who love to ski, swim, and play tennis. Now here I was, like an uncoordinated blimp with thin arms and legs attached to a body that not only looked grotesque, but ached all over. Next time I gain weight, I am totally blaming the aliens. It's rough, though, and we should have some sympathy. The only thing that would be worse than being overweight would you know, be if her kids had to go to a state school instead of Dartmouth or Princeton or Lehigh or something. Okay, okay, my anti, my rabid sort of anti-snob things kicked in. No more, no more of that. In the last third of the book, we start to get more of the earth changes stuff that's really at the heart of what Woodrow is trying to to tell us. She highlights disasters both natural and man-made, concentrating especially on issues in the third world and overpopulation, especially overpopulation in the third world. She also discusses the depletion of natural resources, especially because of third world nations working to improve their standard of living. Noticing a trend? Not that the first world doesn't have its problems. Nuclear plant disasters, greed, violence, division. There are some real issues that we need to deal with. Luckily, the Ogatans are here to show us a way forward. But it's going to be rough. Those in the Ogata Jorpa have evolved to a much higher level of consciousness. What separates beings in the universe is not space, but consciousness, the ability to handle additional and heightened vibrations. Those of the Ogata group are going to share their universal knowledge with us, with you. The members of the Ogata group will be able to point the direction and be among those to guide us into the new age, the age of Aquarius about which our young people have been singing. All new ages have altered man's way of life and this one will be no different. Since change causes trauma, all of us will be better able to handle the changes and inherent stress if we are aware of what is occurring while it is happening. Fear of the unknown is man's greatest fear. We're in a transition period in our planet's evolution, and because we are always weakest in transition, we must be armed with the proper ammunition for survival. This is an unstable time historically, climatically, geologically, astronomically, socially, economically, politically. Those of the Ogata group contribute insights and answers to many of the questions that echo all around us. 
As I've said before, they will arrive in craft which our media refers to as UFOs, but which they call Gatai. So the UFOs, or Gatai, are going to come and save us. Well, some of us. Woodrow closes the book with this. I look for the Ogata group and similar groups to become part of our experienced reality. I look to interfacing with those who come from the cosmos to help planet Earth. I look to welcoming them and assisting their benevolent efforts on our behalf. I look to the coming of the Gatai. I look to riding on a slide of light with you. Or without you. Well, that's nice and ominous. Woodrow was speaking about these issues to various groups before On a Slide of Light was published. She refers to talking to a group of corporate presidents about ESP and ETI, and I would have been skeptical if the copy of the book I received hadn't included a letter, an actual physical letter folded inside the cover, about a meeting called Crossroads 80 from the YPO chapter in Nova Scotia. To all persons attending the YPO 1980 Crossroads Conference, you will recall Dr. Greta Woodrow was a resource at our Crossroads 80 conference. As a further remembrance of this conference, we would like you to accept a copy of Dr. Woodrow's book On a Slide of Light, A Glimpse of Tomorrow. We regret the delay getting these books to you, but with the postal strike, etc., we know you'll enjoy this book no matter when you receive it. We enjoyed each and everyone's company at the 80 conference. Trust you enjoy the rest of the summer. Yours truly, James and Gene Sauler, Chairpersons. Now, I'm not a business guy, so I had to do some Googling to find out that the YPO is the Young President's Organization and apparently is a real thing. So, here it is, proof that the Young President's Organization of Nova Scotia was doing some trippy stuff at their conferences back in 1980. Now, this book was advertised in, among other places, Omni Magazine, which is awesome. This ad is from their June 1981 issue. Greta Woodrow is risking everything to bring us a message about the Earth's future. There will be changes on the face of this planet. Those words, says Greta Woodrow, were communicated to her by an extraterrestrial being. And there were other messages, many tape recorded, which Dr. Woodrow now reveals for the first time in On a Slide of Light. She knows she risks ridicule. Her privacy and her career may be threatened, but Dr. Woodrow is convinced that the world changes ahead are predictable and that they will be directed from more advanced civilizations in the cosmos. Startling? Yes. Mind-challenging? That is exactly Dr. Woodrow's purpose, to alert thinking people to events already occurring that foretell a bright tomorrow. So, what was the reaction to all of this? Since it was published by Macmillan, we get some pretty high-profile reviews. Kirkus Reviews said, Another psychic alert. This one a little wilder than the rest. Greta Woodrow claims to be a channel for extraterrestrial beings, or ETIs, from the planet Ogata in a distant solar system. Needless to say, these far-out critters are only four feet tall, have golden, compassionate eyes, and communicate telepathically. They predict the destruction of much of Earth within the next few decades. In fact, they wish we would cultivate food that doesn't require refrigeration, since electricity will evidently not make it through. Some Ogatans are waiting at a kind of way station right now to lead other advanced civilizations coming to the survivor's rescue. Even for the credulous, a bit much. Publishers Weekly was a bit more forgiving. Because the message of this book is amazing and almost beyond belief, skeptics will undoubtedly rush to debunk it. At the same time, the material revealed here is so tantalizingly related that many a reader will willingly suspend disbelief and let fascination take over. 
According to Woodrow, she's a channel for extraterrestrial intelligences who have revealed through her a scenario of coming cataclysms, natural holocausts in the forms of earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, fires, and famines that will be the harbingers of a crucial period on this planet. During the coming decades, friendly beings from 20-plus civilizations in our and other galaxies will arrive on Earth to help humankind adjust to these and further changes. Woodrow, who is president of an executive search firm and her husband and family who also figure in the narrative, seem to be stable citizens of above-average intellect, not zanies or cranks. All have participated in contacts with ETIs and witnessed Woodrow's astonishing manifestations of ESP. While it's difficult to accept many of Woodrow's assertions, it is also impossible to finish this book without somehow being affected by its provocative claims. And here my snobbery hits a brick wall, because Greta Woodrow's plan in outlining her and her husband's and her children's business and educational achievements did exactly the right job to convince the reviewer, for Publishers Weekly at least, that they are of above-average intellect and not zanies or cranks, like the rest of those flying saucer people. After the break, we will take a look at the post-slide-of-light world of Greta Woodrow and her dear Ezra, husband Dick Smolo. So, we'll return to Greta in a bit, but first, some of the usual announcements. Thank you for the feedback over the last few episodes. It's been a nice motivator for keeping going. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thank you very much to those who've donated in the past. It's much appreciated. We're on Twitter and Instagram at SaucerLife, or you can send us email at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life is available everywhere you can find podcasts. Next time, I'm not entirely sure. It'll be a surprise for all of us. So, after the release of Honest Slide of Light, Greta spent a lot of time on the road, as we can tell from contemporary newspaper reports. She went to Hawaii, for example, and gave a presentation at the University of Hawaii in 1981. Here's the ad. From ESP to ETI, a lecture, question, and answer session with Dr. Greta Woodrow, acknowledged psychic expert on the field of psi phenomenon, author of Honest Slide of Light. From first-hand knowledge, she takes her audience from normal sensory perception to extrasensory perception to extraterrestrial intelligence. Saturday, July 25th, 1981, 9 a.m. to noon, the UHM Art Auditorium, $10 general admission, $5 for students with a UHID. Now, the wording is a little confusing because it gives the impression that the audience will be experiencing communication with aliens, and I'm not sure that's something she would have wanted to promise. Now, Holly Meyer, a fairly elderly man, which surprised me having the name Holly, was a columnist for the Chippewa Herald Telegram in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. In the early 1980s, he put over Greta Woodrow in a huge way. Take, for example, the headline and opening from this March 19, 1981 piece. It's impossible. Nobody without utilizing illusionary mechanization or magical trickery, can bend a solid stainless steel spoon without touching it. It just cannot be done. And that is why a trickle of cold sweat ran down my back on Tuesday of this week as I watched and felt a thick shafted heavy gauge spoon bend under my fingers. 
The sweat was dried with a cold chill a short time later when a stainless steel fork filched from a tray left outside a doorway in a hall of a hotel again twisted and turned in my hand until it was a shapeless caricature of itself. Nor can a diagram sketched in my notebook and unseen by anybody but myself be described to perfection by someone who is across the room. But that's what happened, and it scared the hell out of me. Meyer interviewed Woodrow in Minneapolis where she was giving a presentation. The figure he mentioned drawing that she described to perfection was a six-pointed star, sort of a star of David rotated a bit. The predictions she gave for the future were dire, and Meyer went into more detail on the bent fork. Woodrow talked for maybe another hour about UFOs that are real, about communicating with people on other planets and other galaxies, and about the impending wipeout of up to 2 billion people on Earth in the next 20 years. I just sat there, pretty well shook up. But there was more coming. As we walked out of the room, we passed a tray full of dirty dishes and silverware in front of a door. I noticed that Dr. Woodrow had reached down and picked up a fork, but didn't think too much about it. When we reached the lobby, she stopped and handed me the fork. Put it in your hand, she said, and think curve. I thought curve, but all of a sudden I wished I hadn't. That fork began to twist in my hand, and when I looked at it, the tines were all bent over and the handle was bowed. When I looked up, Dr. Woodrow was walking away, looking over her shoulder and smiling. Goodbye, she said. Have yourself a nice tomorrow. It was a long ride home, and a relief to see that the pines were still standing and the creek was still running at home. But with that twisted fork in my pocket, I couldn't help but wonder how long it would be that way. Meyer asked some questions of Woodrow, including one that has struck many of us who've looked at the claims and predictions of those forecasting dire and dramatic earth changes. Question. What can mankind do to prepare for the deaths of billions that you talk about? Woodrow. Don't be afraid when other civilizations come to help us. Don't stifle your children's imagination when they, for example, see an imaginary friend who says the friend isn't there. Practice mental games to expand your ability to communicate without wires for a time when there is no electricity and learn to grow food that will keep without refrigeration. So, trust the aliens and believe your children's imaginary friends when they tell you what's going on. Got it. At least she didn't take the opportunity to promote a line of survival food and supplies because 20 years later, that was all the rage, right? In fact, she didn't take any money at all for her lectures. Question. Do you accept money for such a fascinating lecture and will you make money on your book? Woodrow. Never. Any honorariums I receive or money from the sale of the book will go to the not-for-profit Space Technology and Research Foundation, which has been established to study paranormal phenomenon. Ah yes, the Star Foundation, as it was known, was established in 1964 by Dick Smolo and Greta Woodrow. This was well before her alien contacts, but after her experimentation with psychic abilities began. I could not, in either of her books, find a date for the establishment of the foundation. Um, her author bio for On a Slide of Light simply states that she's the vice president of it and that it funds research into Psy. I got my 1964 date from a couple different websites that track nonprofit organizations. The last IRS 990 form I could find from them was filed in 2018 for fiscal year 2017, so it existed for that long, although I could find no evidence that it was still operational in an ongoing Psy research-oriented sense. 
The Foundation published the Woodrow Update, a newsletter, and I am ashamed to say that I've found no copies of it on the internet. If anyone has any leads on that, I'd love to see an issue or two. Now, Molly Heyer, Molly Heyer, Holly Meyer would uh, become a big fan of Woodrow's over the years, writing occasional columns reiterating the 1981 spoon-bending episode. Another big fan was Bill Jenkins, host of Open Mind, which we discussed in our Radio Days episode. Here he talks about his love of Honest Light of Light and tells his own spoon-bending story. But to give a little more background, I had read the book Honest Light of Light, uh, the book was published by, as I recall, Macmillan. Yes. Yeah. And it was a, it, it's a marvelous book. And I have a little stack of books, Greta, in my library. And there's a shelf up there reserved for the ones that have been the most instrumental in shaping the way I think and the way I am and, and open mind and just everything about me. And right up there is on a slide of light. Ah, uh, you're so nice to say that, Bill. Uh, I have bought about 12 copies, and they always keep disappearing every time I have visitors over to the house. I have the biggest, freest library in the world, I guess. You're wonderful. But I always find another one. And one of the, the bookstores in town, Greta, I, did, I thought you would be uh, delighted about this, called me the, yesterday or the day before and said that they had found a number of uh, the books, and they now have them in stock. The hardbacks. Well, that's that? wonderful. We have uh, uh, paperbacks out now through New Age Press. And if they can't find them there, why, they can always write to Star. We'll get into all of that. Good. I want to tell one of the most fascinating stories, if I may. Please. Let, let me tell you about Greta Woodrue and, and Dick Smolo for just a little bit. And this goes back, oh, I don't know, what, three or four years? At least. At least that. When uh, I first heard about you... And I wanted to meet you, and I wanted to introduce on a slide of light to this audience, and I wanted to introduce them to the Ugatans, and I want to introduce them to a person that has amazing abilities, as they had been related to me. And uh, the both of you were very kind, and you, you flew out here to be on the radio show with us. I had never met you, and I met, and we were going to, we had lunch one day, as I recall, in a little Italian restaurant up in uh, Brentwood. Yes, we did. And I didn't know you from Adam, and you didn't know me from Adam, and we met, and we sat down in that nice little Italian restaurant, and it was wonderful, and uh, got to know each other, and, and you asked me to put my hands over a spoon that was there. Now... At that restaurant, they have these very heavy-duty kind of spoons, as I recall. And I said, okay. And I put my hand over the spoon, and you put your hand on top of mine, and you said, tell the spoon to bend. Now, Greta, I looked at you funny. Probably. <laughs> and I said, okay, spoon, bend. And you took your hand off my hand, and I took my hand off of the spoon, and the spoon was bending, and it continued to bend. And at the neck of the spoon where it was bending, smoke was coming from it. And I felt of it, and it was cold. And do you recall the two waiters that were sitting there watching? Yes, I remember <laughs> their eyeballs almost <laughs> fell out. They almost fell out. 
Now, like other Open Mind episodes uh, that I've grabbed from archive.org, I'm not sure of the date beyond the early 80s. Um, I've been able to track down two appearances in Open Mind that Greta and Dick made, and one thing that really comes through in these is the level of involvement Dick Smolo had. They really were a team. Now, remember that Greta had an appearance at the University of Hawaii? She made several return trips there, and one in 1986 would cause some trouble. The headline from the announcement of the event read, Visiting Psychic Planning to Flesh Out Earlier Book on ETI, and discussed Woodrow's basic ideas, including the fact that she believed she was able to use her psychic abilities to heal people of physical ailments. We'll return to this angle in a bit. Now, this 1986 appearance at University of Hawaii led to criticism. A month later, there would be this headline, UH scientists hope to drain the profits out of quackery. Helen Alton of the Honolulu Star Bulletin wrote the following. Complaints about the paid appearance of a so-called psychic last month at the University of Hawaii may result in a policy governing use of campus facilities, says UH physics professor Victor Stenger. Greta Woodrue, who claims she is a psychic who has communicated with extraterrestrial intelligence, gave a public lecture last month at the UH at the invitation of the campus center board. Stenger said the Board of Regents decided to form some broad guidelines for the use of campus facilities after learning that just one student made the decision to ask Woodrow to speak. She was paid $10,000, and the campus board lost $1,000, Stenger said. He said presenting the lecture at the university gave it, quote, an appearance of dignity and credibility, end quote. Stenger discussed the incident at a meeting Saturday at the UH attended by about 40 scientists, science teachers, and students concerned about pseudoscientists. $10,000 out of what presumably was some budget that in some way was funded by either the taxpayers or tuition money? Good grief. The fact that this was apparently something that a student organization and one student in that organization could authorize boggles my tiny mind. To be fair, that $10,000 undoubtedly went to the Star Foundation, which was run by Greta and her husband, and not directly to Greta. I find it interesting that there seemed to be far more uproar in 1986 than there was for her earlier presentation, and I'm wondering what role was played in this by the ongoing concern during the mid to later 1980s about televangelist scandals, crooked faith healers, and things like that. So the healing stuff, it's mentioned in that news story, but she talks about it extensively in her second book, Memories of Tomorrow, One Woman's Cosmic Connection. This was published by Doubleday in 1988. In many ways, this book covers the same ground as On a Slide of Light. It's more autobiographical, however, and reveals that, and this is shocking, Greta had psychic and extraterrestrial experiences as a child, as well as when she was an adult. She also talks about healing, but it's more fun to hear about this from she and Dick, uh, or her and Dick, rather, themselves, especially uh, especially Dick Smallow. Here's another clip from Open Minds with Bill Jenkins. We have Stuart on the line. Hello, Stuart. Uh, hello, uh, Bill. A terrific program, and I'm taping it. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to ask your uh, uh, guest if she has ever used her physical psychic energy uh, for the purpose of healing. I'm, I know that she could do it. Uh, well, I spend about 80% of my time on healing. Good. Uh, this is something that I love to do. If I wanted to be a doctor, I would have gone to medical school. I am not one. But I certainly 
I'm thrilled that I have the ability, as you do, to heal. And maybe I've just been at it a little longer than most, so maybe my success ratio is a little higher. The answer is a very firm yes. And we've seen our, quote, miracles here, and they are very exciting. And I, I really think that's what keeps me going. Thank you for asking that. Yes, could you... Sure, just being around Greta is healing, uh, like it is being around you. Could you describe one of the, one case? Well, I'll let Dick describe one for you. I feel funny. Oh. Well, uh, about two weeks ago, a young lady in her early 40s uh, was met at a plane by a chauffeur that we sent. Uh, she was taken off the plane in a wheelchair. Uh, she had a brace on her back and a brace on her leg. And the story that she told is that the neurologists were unable to do anything more for her, that her discs were out, there was a lump on her back, and the psychiatrist felt that uh, she was no longer able to be helped, and uh, she got to us through some supporters of the Star Foundation. They had kissed her off, in other words. The medical profession had said they had done all that they could for her, and uh, that was on Friday morning when the the, uh, driver picked her up, and Sunday... She uh, walked to the plane carrying her own luggage and two weeks later flew to Paris and has changed her life. It was a most exciting metamorphosis. A new butterfly flew out and it's what keeps us young. Does the AMA know about you guys? Well, as a matter of fact, we had three doctors here, one from California, to study for a weekend. Uh, That's, you know, like Bible on one foot. But they were here for the weekend. And I understand that your L.A. doctor has used all of the transfer of energy um, lessons that we gave her to be used with a comatose patient, and it's working. In the book, she does point out that not everybody is able to be healed, but those who aren't generally aren't able to because of a sort of psychological hang-up where they are um, sort of dependent on their illness or disability for uh, for sympathy or something like that. She, she explains it in terms that are fairly vague, but give her enough of an out to, to sort of you know, explain why she doesn't just heal everybody. Uh, they have to actively want to be healed and, and come to her and ask. So in this book, she also describes um, an outing with her family that involved some of the alien presences. And, and this, is, this, is, this is weird, but fun. One of the most delightful evenings we ever spent with our Orgotten friends occurred later that month. It all came about because we thought it would be fun to celebrate three birthdays, Dick, Jonathan, and Jill were all born in July, with a night out on the town in the Big Apple. The four of us started out with dinner at Trader Vic's, an elegant Polynesian restaurant in the Plaza Hotel in Manhattan. We made an early reservation to eat at 5.45 so that we could enjoy a leisurely meal before taking in the Yule Brenner revival of The King and I, for which Dick had obtained first row center orchestra seats. Oh, for crying out loud, just say you had dinner and a show out in New York City. You don't need to tell us what restaurant you went to. You don't need... uh, Okay. Okay. Back to it. Sorry. 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 Midway through the meal, Tari came in to wish Jill and Jonathan happy birthdays. A couple of tables away, a baby was crying. Tari quickly cried at him with a flutter of her fingers in his direction, then spoke to Jill and Jonathan separately. Shortly thereafter, Zioker joined the party. Though he never spoke, he communicated by bows, smiles, and nods, and he was always amazingly understood. Zioker had a special gift for Jill. Using my body, of course, he leaned forward and extended his hands. 
In the middle of a public restaurant, a very large green leaf suddenly materialized in his right hand. He offered it to Jill, who clutched it to her as if fearing it would dematerialize any second. She and Jonathan both asked if the leaf had come from Arca, and Ziokar nodded, sweeping his hands in a gesture of giving. After that memorable meal, the four of us, I was Greta again briefly, set off for the Eurus Theater. We were crossing Broadway at 51st Street when Dick, Jill, and Jonathan realized someone else had joined them, someone they didn't recognize. They knew only that the visitor was male and from Arca, and that was clear from the distinctly Arcan manner, a waddle, in which the stranger was moving. This is just fun, isn't it? I don't even know how to be snarky about it. I, I'm I'm just imagining this this family out for this nice dinner, and walking walking through uh, walking through New York City, and and the the middle aged woman with them basically manifesting all of these different actions, and in the case of Tari, you know voices from these otherworldly beings. I'm imagining and picturing this middle aged woman waddling waddling across Broadway in New York City. It's, I can't even be snarky about it because assuming this went down the way it was described here, this must have just been amazing to see. I I just need to move on. This is, this is wonderful. So in Memories of Tomorrow, Greta also explains that she and Dick moved to North Carolina in the mid-1980s to establish a new base for the Star Foundation. Wonderfully, in connection with the story about Jill Smolo receiving a gift from Zioker the alien, Greta reprints a letter she received from Jill, uh, who by this time was working as a journalist during the time when they were working on this move to North Carolina. There were hilarious moments. There was, for example, the letter we received from Jill. All of our children were delighted with what was happening, but a bit baffled at trying to describe our work to the uninitiated. Jill wrote, Here's a typical conversation with my colleagues at Newsweek. So what's new? Oh, my folks recently moved to North Carolina. Oh, did they retire? No, they decided they needed a change of scenery. What are they going to do down there? They're involved in some research of their own. What kind of research? Now here's the problem. I can't just blurt out, oh, they deal with matters outside the current paradigms, or they're conducting psychic experiments, and I can't launch into a three-hour discourse on the Ogata group, so I say something precise like, gee, I think I hear my phone ringing and I'm expecting a call from our correspondent in Nicaragua. I hope Tari and the other friends don't feel slighted, but what's the daughter slash reporter of a psychic to do? I can't be snarky about this either. I'm not sure what's wrong with me. Well, actually, I am kind of sure what's wrong with me. I'll discuss it in a bit. Now, I don't want to call what they constructed in North Carolina a compound because that's got sort of some heavy post-Waco connotations to it that I don't think are warranted. Here's Greta's description of what they were aiming for. We've learned how to handle the traffic flow of our many visitors and guests. We installed video equipment, a raised podium incorporating the latest electronics, and plenty of room for an audience. Numerous healings have taken place at the house, and we have held several major conferences. As befits our purpose, our logo, the Greek Psi symbol, is worked into and onto our Cherokee stone walls. What the house's long-range uses will be, we still do not know with certainty, but Tari assures us that it will serve the purpose for which it will be needed. For now, all we know is that our personal scenario is on schedule. A place by 84, a building year 1985, a storage year 1986, a writing year 1987, another book in 1988. We hope that we have been allaying the fears. 
We are not apologetic about what we're doing, not to dear friends who do not and cannot understand, not to strangers who decide we are either kooks or elitists, not to those who feel we have thrown away what would be extraordinarily useful lives in what they call the real world, not to anyone. There's a, a dedication here that you don't often see with contactees. They aren't out on the circuit. They aren't with the exception of two books for major publishers, they aren't pumping out reams of content. They aren't on the radio shows all the time. They're quietly, relatively quietly working with those who understand and know and agree with what they're doing toward their own purpose. I like that, and it's weird. So this house really is... Not a compound, it's really sort of a conference center and a place of education about the coming Earth changes. The book also discusses some of the then-current trends in ufology, including Roswell and Yon MJ-12. But these are confined to one chapter and feel almost like contractually obligated UFO talk. Almost like Doubleday had, had sort of sent back the first draft and said, um where's the UFO stuff? We need some UFO stuff. Please put in some UFO stuff. And they were like, fine, whatever. Um, like the best contactee work, her real focus here is on the aliens she has a relationship with and what that relationship and what she's learned from it means for humanity. She's not talking about the phenomenon in general. She's talking about her, what she would call her experienced reality. Greta and Dick seem to have slowed down by the 1990s. In the newspapers, all I can really find involving them at all are legal notices in the local North Carolina paper that the Star Foundation's annual reports were available for viewing. Greta and Dick would eventually move into a retirement community, and the Star Foundation complex was up for sale in 2011. Local newspapers carried this ad. Resort Retreat, former mountainside home of Greta Woodrow, author of Memories of Tomorrow. Private large Bavarian tutor, 8,000 plus square feet, 22 and a half acres, 30 miles west of Asheville. In-ground pool, greenhouse, storage buildings, barn, trails, and fish pond. Reduced to 875,000. It sounds amazing. There's a link in the show notes to a video that the realtors made showing it off, and it is, it is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. Equally gorgeous is the ad copy from Special Finds, the real estate company that was selling it. It's entitled Tips on Selling Metaphysical Houses. This is a real thing. Selling metaphysical houses have unique challenges. There are homes on this earth that hold a special calling. Often the location on which the property is located reaches out to the new owner. Buyers may be attracted to an advertisement for the property but feel no connection to the setting. When the right buyer comes along, it's important to allow them to connect rather than force or push for an offer. Such is the situation with our special finds listing at 1192 Rabbitskin Road in Waynesville. Selling metaphysical houses like this one in Waynesville, North Carolina sometimes requires waiting for the buyer to be called. This home has a history of finding its next owner. Over the years, this property has gained much attention worldwide. In its early years, it was the home of psychic, author, and cosmic communicator Greta Woodrow. Acting as the corporate retreat for the founders of the Space Technology and Research Foundation, it hosted many famous visitors from around the world. Currently, it's utilized as a private family residence. These owners saw the property in a dream and felt such a strong calling that they relocated from Florida, no questions asked. They later discovered 
that on the 23 acres were life-healing crystals and a vortex they were able to reopen. When selling metaphysical houses, it's important to recognize that everything emanates from energy, and by focusing on the feeling that the property is giving out, you may be able to allow the house to attract its next owner. If you own a property that you believe has a special calling, if you or friends are healed or become healthy upon visiting your property, you may own a metaphysical house. Calling on a higher force to find the next buyer can help. Walk the grounds, be quiet, meditate, and notice any special sensations. Your property has a soul that may have existed before you. Tap into it by listening and feeling. Selling metaphysical houses may require more time and thus patience. Be open to signs equaling opportunities for the new owner to appear. I thought that music was appropriate, and I can't believe I made it through that without busting out laughing. But it must have worked, because it did sell at some point. It was sold to an organization that would keep the star name. It was called Star Ranch, which stands for Save the Animals Rescue. And it's an organization, still operational today, that protects and helps all kinds of animals, from horses to goats uh, to all kinds of things that have been abused or neglected. So they're, they're doing wonderful work out there. So Greta died in 2010, within months of her daughter Anne's own passing from cancer. Her daughter Jill, the journalist, wrote a memoir about this time called Four Funerals and a Wedding, Resilience in a Time of Grief. And I love this sort of description she paints of Greta at the end of her life. She was so unsentimental about death, my mother. Life, as she saw it, was an eternal continuum, not to be confused with the physical body. When the body gave out, the spirit exited, like a driver from a broken-down car, and continued on its journey. My mother saw no reason to cling. To her, the final breath was a new beginning. She was interested in, even excited about, what came next. In a retirement community, she'd become the go-to person when families were wrestling with a loved one's final throes. Summoned to countless deathbeds, she'd whisper to a distraught son, daughter, or spouse, Tell him it's okay to let go. Tell him you'll be fine. Much like Orfeo Angelucci, Greta Woodrow is one contactee that I, I just can't see straight. I'm not saying I believe her claims, but I'm open to the possibility that she, for a very long time, uh, can experience something very sort of consistent. I don't get a grifter vibe from her. I, I haven't yet been able to determine just what kind of research precisely the Star Foundation funded during its heyday, but the paperwork available that I've seen from the 2010s, it appears to have been an exceptionally well-run private foundation that dispersed between 50 and 100 grand a year to numerous charities, particularly human rights organizations, cancer research, organizations dedicated to caring for animals, and children's charities. Dick Smolo, uh, Greta's faithful Ezra, passed away at some point prior to 2018, and I suspect that the assets of the foundation were used to establish that Greta Smolo scholarship at the University of Florida. Just a guess. Don't hold me to it. She was such an interesting person with weird, interesting tales to tell, and uh, I, I urge you to check out her books. Uh, her second one, which, which sort of thoroughly tells... Her story is available for free borrowing from archive.org, uh, the Internet Archive, so be sure to check that out. Um, thank you, Jordan, of the Nighttime Podcast, for introducing uh, me and all of us to Greta Woodrow. 
There are links in the show notes, including to the episodes of Open Mind that feature Greta, actually a link to all of the Open Mind stuff in general, and you can find her stuff very easily there. Thanks for listening. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the Ogata Group is watching you.